Welcome to the Food and Faith Podcast, conversations from the soil and around the table with your co-hosts, Anna Wolfenden, Derek Weston, and Sam Chandler. Welcome back, Food and Faith Podcast listeners. Um, it is Derek again, by myself, flying solo. Um, but Anna and, and Sam have good reasons to, they're, they're doing good things in the world as they, as they often do. Um, but today I'm really excited to have this conversation. This is kind of new territory for, for us as a podcast. Um, we're going to be talking about the book uh, Protest Kitchen, and I'm here with one of the co-authors, Jenny Messina. Um, Jenny is a dietitian with a master's degree in public health nutrition. She is the author of a textbook on plant-based diets for health professionals and of eight other books, including Vegan for Life, Even Vegans Die, and Protest Kitchen. She has published peer-reviewed journal articles on plant-based nutrition, taught nutrition to university students, and worked as a public health nutritionist. She served on advisory boards to national and international science conferences and to numerous animal advocacy organizations. As a nutrition consultant, she writes and speaks about vegan nutrition, preventing ex-vegans, and body positivity. Her latest book is an all-new edition of Vegan for Life with updated recommendations and new material for vegans and aspiring vegans. Jenny, thank you for being here with us. Oh, thank you for having me. It's great to have a chance to talk with you. Absolutely. Um, so we're going to start where we always do. Um, tell us what is your geography? What are the places shape uh, uh, places that have shaped you, uh, the culture that has shaped you, the foods, music, all those sorts of things? What's what is your geography? Um, yeah, well, my, my food geography, it's, it's been, it's been kind of a, of a journey um, with, with lots of changes. I grew up um, in, uh, I grew up in northern New Jersey in a, a suburb of New York City and um, in a family where frugality was very much valued. We were not low income by, by any means, but but um, and kind of, you know, my parents kind of needed to, to count their pennies. Um, so that was a real important ethic in my family, but it never seemed to extend to food. And there was always sort of a, um, this aspect of abundance around food in, um, in my family and in my culture. Uh, I, lived, I lived in a town that was predominantly white and had very large Italian and Jewish populations. And so I had lots of exposure to the cuisines of those cultures, which was just fantastic. And this was, you know, my family never went to restaurants and we didn't have the internet. This was back in the 1960s. And so all of my exposure to food came through my neighbors and my friends and my family. And it was just this great big um, vat of all different kinds of foods. It was, it was really kind of, kind of great. And that included my mother's very good, very meat-centric cooking as well. Um, and then when I went to when I went to college and graduate school, I, that's kind of when uh, farmers markets started to be really big in college towns. I was in Ann Arbor and East Lansing, Michigan. Um, I got very involved in the food co-op movement. Um, I even ran a buying club type food co-op out of a church basement for a couple of years, and that's something that I had part of my life. I had completely forgotten about until you asked me this question and it was a, a really fun part of my life so it's great to to recall that um and and i started and and so those kinds of things were shaping me as as i started started going vegetarian and i was leaving behind a lot of the the 
the cultural aspects of my my family's diet and moving into into this new way of eating with these new kinds of of influences. And I was already a dietitian at that point. Um, people often think that I became a vegan first and then went into dietetics, but I was a meat dairy eating dietitian before I before I started exploring vegetarianism. So tell us a little bit about what was what was your journey to becoming a vegan? What what um, what were the influences? What were what were you reading at the time? Or, or what was what was what shaped that decision for you? Well, I think that the first book that I read that's that started me on that path was um, Diet for a Small Planet by Francis Moore LePay. You're familiar with that. Mm-hmm. Um, that was such an important book. I mean, she got so many things wrong about nutrition, but it doesn't matter because, because the, the way that she opened people's eyes to, to the production of animal foods and her whole concept of a protein factory in reverse where we take this abundant protein in animals and funnel it down into, you know, pour all of these resources into production and funnel, funnel it down to, to this tiny bit of protein that we end up feeding to, to people. And of course she was concerned about the effect that that had on the environment and also on on world hunger. I'm, I'm not sure that it has such an impact on world hunger, but it certainly does on the environment. And that was really, um, I was fairly young at that point, was not a dietitian, was not thinking about food very much, but that really opened my eyes to this, this fact that um, uh, I had always thought of, of food as kind of uh, a, a good, fo- good abundant food as sort of an essential right. And I still think that it's a right. It should be a right for everyone. But it opened my eyes to the fact that when we are making food choices, we need to be thinking about the rights of um, other people, the, uh, the impacts that our food choices have on animals, the impacts that they have on, on the environment. So that was a big... Um, that was a, a big eye opener for me. And then um, again, you know, I was exposed, I was shopping at these food co-ops and I was, ex- I was buying tofu and I was, you know, exploring all of these foods that were very new to me and um, bought a couple of vegetarian cookbooks. And uh, one of them was Laurel's Kitchen, which is a very crunchy granola kind of 1970s vegetarian cookbook. It's just great. I still have my original copy and um her, uh, and I was a big animal lover, have been, been all of my life. And the um, dedication in her book was to um, a, uh, a small black calf whose eyes met mine when he was on the way to the slaughterhouse. And I read that and, you know, it was like the epiphany. It was like the light bulb went on over my head. And I thought, wow, you know, I like animals. Um, I like meat something something doesn't fit together here and and so that was another big impetus towards um towards choosing um towards choosing a vegetarian diet and so then I so I went vegetarian and then um I was already a dietitian and then several years later because I was a vegetarian I got a job working for an organ a nonprofit organization in Washington DC um had moved there with no job for my husband's work and um, got a job with this organization that was promoting vegan diets. And I knew nothing about veganism at that time. I thought you would just keel over and die if you didn't have dairy foods. Um, but uh, I went to work for that organization and I learned a lot. And I learned a lot about the, the treatment of animals um, on dairy and egg farms and about how these impact the environment and impact human rights. And um, 
there was no turning back from there. I, I started moving towards a vegan diet and that was, uh, oh, I guess 25 years ago. So it stuck. Yeah, it sounds like it did. <laughs> <laughs> so um, your book, uh, Protest Kitchen, Fight Injustice, Save the Planet and Fuel Your Resistance, One Meal at a Time, uh, which you co-wrote with Carol J. Adams. Um, tell me a little bit about what, what was the impetus for writing this book? What, um, what motivated you to, you two to come together and, and write this book? We started writing this book. Um, you can you can kind of tell what motivated uh, motivated us to do it by from the timing of it. We started writing it in um, November of 2016, um, right after the presidential election, and um, uh, you know it was a time when people were so involved and and uh, you know so involved with the resistance. And we kind of started talking about, you know, what veganism meant to us and what our food choices meant to us. And we started seeing these, these not, not just these parallels, but these ways in which um, um, making food choices is, is really a part of fighting back against regressive politics. Mm-hmm. Um, and it because you know because we make food choices that impact the environment, we make food choices that um, impact farm workers, and we make food choices that impact uh, so many things that, that people aren't even thinking about, like chocolate farms in Africa that use um, children in, as in slave labor to produce chocolate that we eat, and you know our chocolate chip cookies here in, in the United States, and um, and so we started thinking about the fact that. A, a kitchen is a place of protest because it's a place where we make all of these everyday kinds of decisions that have a real impact. And so that was the, that discussion led to this book. I love, I love that idea of, of kitchen as a place of protest. I think there's, um, there's absolutely um, what we do, what we, what we buy in terms of uh, what we're going to feed ourselves and our families—that's a political act. Um, what we, what we are, um, how we prepare things can be a political act. Um, and what we don't buy—that's a political act. And, I, and so I just—I loved—I love I just that image of kitchen as as protest. As as you were writing this book, um, how did you how did you reconnect to your food and 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 your like how did you bridge that gap that so often exists between where our food comes from and and what we ultimately end up consuming well i think so i i think that uh that we need to be careful about how we bridge that gap we need Hmm. to we need to look at at where food is coming from and and you know realize that um it's coming from many places in, in, in many different ways. And so for example, um, in a protest kitchen, you might, you know, you might choose if, if you are able to, if, if you have the ability and the resources to do this, you might choose to cook more food from scratch, um, eat more food from your garden, because this is a way of reducing plastic use. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some, and this is something that I struggle with all the time, because even as a, even as a vegan, even as somebody who is 
uh, very conscious about my food choices. Oh my gosh, I am just appalled at how much plastic goes through my kitchen. Um, and so, and, and so, making those kinds of choices um, at, at the at the the center of what we write about in in this book, of course, are factory farms and the huge impact that they have on everybody, everybody all across the globe, because they are just awful for the environment and. Um, uh, and that's something that affects everyone. And it's something that affects uh, people living in low income countries the most. They're the ones who suffer the most from it. And those of us living in higher income countries are the, the worst perpetrators. We are creating the worst amount of global warming and, and then it's hurting other people. So um, looking at factory farms and, and thinking about, especially factory farms that are, that are raising animals, thinking about ways that you can um, remove your participation in that or at least decrease your participation in that is, is one of the biggest ways that we look at where our food is coming from and, and how we can make a difference. But then there are also the you know, the, the other things that have nothing to do with factory farms, like I mentioned, the chocolate production. Mm -hmm. um, I have had been vegan for years, you know, thinking that I was making the best choices always that, you know, my choices were perfect when it came to food. And I didn't know about that. I didn't know how awful chocolate production is. I didn't know about um, production of palm oil mm -hmm. and it's and how it is destroying tropical tropical rainforests and palm oil is very, very predominant in vegan processed foods. Mm -hmm. So vegans end up eating a fair amount of, of palm oil. So it's complicated. There are lots of different different sources of food and lots of different ways that, um, that we can make a difference. And it is not always possible to, we, we can make a best choice, but um, it's not always a perfect choice. Thank you for saying that. I think that's that's really helpful for for people to hear. I think that there can be um, uh, there's a there can be a, a bar a standard that we 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 sometimes feel like if we can't reach that bar then then why even try? But I think a lot of what your book highlights for us is that those small incremental decisions that we make in each meal can have an impact. Right. Yeah. And that was, and of course, a, a big part of the book, I think it's about two thirds, thirds of the book are these, these daily actions, 30 days mm -hmm. of, of daily actions and, and things that you can do. And it's not, you know, it does, we don't mean to say that you need to do all of them or, or that, you know, as soon as you do all, do all of these, you're, you're going to have the perfect diet or you're going to be a vegan. They're just ideas for mm -hmm. simple ways that, that you can make changes um, that most people may never, may never really have, have thought about. Um, to mostly just show people how easy it is to make one small decision during the day that has a real political impact, a real impact on, on your diet and, and what you're doing. And it's not that big a deal. It doesn't really take away from anything else that you're doing. So, um, so those, yes, those are, those are small changes and you won't wake up the next morning and be a perfect person, but you'll have made one, one little change that's, that's a little bit better for the world and, and for you. And, and the way that you write those daily actions, uh, I think they're so inviting. They're, they're, hey, try this, this, uh, this substitute for, for cheese. Try this, this uh, impossible burger. Try, you know, it's, it's all of these things that are, that feel very invitational that are asking people to take 
essentially really small risks in yeah. going out of comfort zones. And I, yeah. I, I really, I felt that was a very, it, it felt like a very invitational, uh, it felt like an invitation to, to, you know, dip your toes into some waters that you might not otherwise. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. And I actually had, I had an experience with that as, as a reader because um, my co-author Carol wanted to include this recipe for um, carrot hot dogs, hot dogs made from carrots. And I said, no way. I said, that's like, that is, that is like this, the typical hippie vegan food. Nobody wants to eat uh, out of carrots. That's ridiculous. And, and so she said, well, would you just try them? Would you just try my recipe for hot dog carrots? And I, I said, yeah, you know, it's, it sounds like fun at, at the very least. So, so I'll do it. So I made her hot dog carrots and wow, they were fantastic. I just really love them. And, and uh, so we ended up putting in, putting them in the book. So it, it gave me sort of a sense of how um, maybe some of our readers will come to this and, and look at some of those things and say, oh, you know, I don't know. I don't know if that's going to work for me, but hopefully they'll give it a try and, and hopefully they'll have my hot dog carrot experience with, with at least some of them. I had, I also had some skepticism when I saw that, when I saw that recipe there. And then as I read through it, I'm like, I, I kind of said, you know what, I bet my kids would love this. Yeah. And yeah. I, you know, it was kind of one of those things where I, I, I you know, again, kind of getting over some of our own biases and, and our own hesitations, I think is a lot of what this book is, is calling us to. You include so many recipes in the book. Um, and and I'm, I'm wondering where, do, where you collected them from. Are they things that come from, uh, obviously the, the, the carrot hot dogs weren't yours originally, right. <laughs> um, but I, I'm wondering where you, where you gathered them from and, um, and, what were kind of what was the what was the thinking about which which recipes were included in in the book? Yeah, so the res the recipes um, mostly came from us. They were recipes okay. that we've kind of developed or adapted over the years, and and they also came from some friends as well. And the the recipes at the end of the book were uh, we asked somebody specifically to develop those for us. Um, we tried to choose recipes that were that that showed the diversity of vegan eating. Um, uh, we recipes that reflected uh, plant-based eating of, of different cultures, and also recipes that really helped to fill a gap in in diets when when people go vegan. For example, we have a recipe for faux parm, which is a a vegan Parmesan cheese made from nutritional yeast and. Um, I make it from walnuts. I think the one in the book might be made from almonds and, and salt. It's, it's, a, it's a real simple thing that has, it, it, because it has nutritional yeast in it, I don't know if you're familiar with that product, mm -hmm. but it's, um, it, it has a, a, a very strong essence of umami, which is this mm -hmm. um, fifth taste that's often associated with aged cheeses. And um, it's something that's really, Parmesan cheese is something that's really missing in, in a plant-based diet because it really is something that you want to put on your pasta and, um, or, or, you know, on, on a minestrone soup. And so we need it. And, and so I think that that's a, res, a real simple recipe that fills a real gap for people in, um, in a plant-based diet. And, and especially because it has this umami and, and, you know, that's something that a lot of people miss when they stop eating cheese. So those are the kinds of recipes we tried to include. We tried to include some really fun things. There's a vegan Bailey's Irish cream in there. Um, 
and uh, and of course some desserts and some some energy balls. Um, uh, and they're you know they're they were real easy to make and their function is so that you have something to kind of put and wrap up and put in your pocket for protest days if you're going to be out protesting for a long day you have some some energy food to eat so we really tried to tie the recipes to to the needs of people who are politically active and people who are curious about vegetarian and vegan diets and people who are going vegan who are actually going in that direction and really need to fill in some of these gaps yeah. And it's, um, I think it's it's important that you, as someone who has a background um, in nutrition, you're including things to also show um, that people can get all of the things that they need yeah. from a vegan diet. Yeah, I think that's that's one of the that's one of the I think that's one of the things that I. Um, that we hear so often is that, you know, there are certain things that, that the body needs and that we can't get all of those things from plants. Um, and, and a lot of the recipes that you, you include actually work against that, that, um, that mis that misreception. Right. And we also have, and, and, and as you saw, we also have a very short section at the end that gives some basic guidelines for meeting nutrient needs for, for people who do decide to go on a diet that's just plants um, to kind of allay some of those concerns. Yeah. So one of the other, um, I want to talk a little bit about some of the, the misconceptions of, of veganism. Um, one of those is that it's it's not accessible cost-wise. That, that it, it's, you know, when you think about the cost of, of meat substitutes, or you think about the cost of uh, certain things that you might only be able to get at specialty stores. Um, it feels like it's a more expensive way of eating. Um, what, what has been your response and your experience of that for, for folks who say that it feels like it's, it's uh, kind of exclusive in that way? Yeah, I think that um, um, I think it's it's a fair observation because because first of all, um, it is definitely a privilege to be able to choose what you will and won't eat, um, it, and and it is a, a privilege that a whole lot of people in the world don't have. And so I am I would never say oh yeah you know everybody needs to find a way to go vegan. Um, in my opinion, people who do have uh, who do have the privilege of choosing what they will eat have an obligation to choose wisely and to, to choose in, in, in a way that doesn't um, exploit other people, that doesn't exploit animals and, and, and the earth. And so to me, because I can, uh, I'm very much a privileged person who has access to a wide variety of foods, veganism feels like an obligation to me. Um, I meet many people who are in, in a position, you know, they're uh, people who are eating from food banks for the most part. Um, a lot of food banks, you know, I give vegan food to food banks, but a lot of food banks don't have vegan food. And so there are people who simply, or, you know, or who live in, a, in, in you know, what we, we've long called a food desert, who are shopping at convenience stores, um, don't have transportation it can be really difficult to find affordable vegan foods in a lot of circumstances. And so I think that, um, um, th that from, from that perspective, you know, we ask people to do what they can. Mm 
Um, veganism can be very expensive if you're using a lot of the convenience products and the convenience products are wonderful. I wax poetic about them all the time, but they are fairly expensive. Veganism is very inexpensive if you are just eating a diet of beans and rice and fruits and frozen vegetables. But you know, not everybody wants to eat that way. And, and I get that. Um, so I, I would also not say to somebody, well, yeah, you know, you can do it. If, if you really care, you can do it if you just, just eat these foods. I mean, people want to eat good food too. They want to in, enjoy their diets. So, um, you know, I'll read to you the, the, defini the definition, the, the real definition of veganism. It's a, it's a term that was um, coined in the 1940s in England, in Great Britain. Um, uh, by a small group of, of people who were members of the British Vegetarian Society. And they decided to, uh, they decided that it was time to drop dairy from their diet. And they coined the term vegan, which contains the first three letters of vegetarianism and the last two letters, because they said it starts with vegetarianism and takes it to its logical conclusion. So that's where they got that word. And this is how they defined veganism. I believe this was 1944. They said veganism is a philosophy and a way of living which seeks to exclude as far as possible and practicable all forms of exploitation of and cruelty to animals for food, clothing, and any other purpose. And so they included those words as far as possible and practicable. And we really reinforce that when we talk to people now, you know, so many uh, 60 years later, when we talk about veganism and about making vegan choices, we, we really focus on, um, on those terms so that people understand that um, veganism is a, is a set of beliefs and then you do what you can to bring your practices in line with those beliefs, but you may not be able to do it all depending on your circumstances. Um, and there's lots of discussion about that right now. In, uh, for example, there's tons of discussion online about the COVID vaccine. Mm -hmm. which is tested on animals. And so, and so it's not vegan. And so is it okay for vegans to get, to get the COVID vaccine? Well, of course it's okay. You know, it's responsible. It's the only option. And we work for a better world where animals aren't used in, in um, experimentation. But for now, this is all that we have. And so to be responsible members of society, we take, we take the COVID vaccine. So that's a long answer to your question about the that's affordability of, of veganism. <laughs> but, but my, but my shorter answer is, is that this is, this is a, an, an ethic. It's something that we strive for and, and we do it in our own lives to the best that we can, because our lives are all different and we all have different resources. Yeah, and, I, and thank you for that answer because I, I, again, I feel like what you are, what you're saying, and what your book is saying are are they are invitations to 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 stretch to think about things differently and to stretch ourselves in in some healthy ways based off of the level of privilege that we we do enjoy and we all have varying levels of privilege mm -hmm. um, and there's there's some real um, there's some real invitation uh, some real invitation there um, I want to um, zoom in on chapter four which is about misogyny mm -hmm. and I, I, I because I, I found that to be maybe the most surprising chapter when I when I thought like climate change made perfect sense, 
um, food justice. I mean, that's that's kind of our jam here on the on the Food and Faith podcast. Yeah. Um, but misogyny was was a, a really interesting direction, uh, and I I was I found it very compelling. Can you say a little bit more about how veganism combats misogyny? Yeah, uh, so this was, uh, uh, my co-author wrote this chapter. This is a, a very big um, area of, this is her area of, of expertise. She wrote a book called The Sexual Politics of Meat, mm. which, um, I would, which I would highly recommend. And it, and it also covers, covers a lot of this material. We kind of looked at two aspects of this, um, uh, of focusing on female bodies. And, and how that relates to the, the meat and dairy industries in, in particular. And one of them is that, um, is that the production of, of animal foods and especially the production of dairy foods and eggs relies very much on the exploitation of female reproduction. Um, female animals are kept in a constant state of reproducing. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm among the people who grew up believing that cows just magically gave milk all the time, you know, that that's just something that a cow's body did. Well, they only give milk when they're, when they've had a, when they've given birth, they're mammals, and that's when mammals, that's when mammals produce milk. Um, And so, and, and so cows are, you know, cows every year, they have a baby, the baby is removed because the milk is, is supposed to be for, for sale, for, um, for profit. And, um, and so the, and you know, cows have a really strong maternal instinct. It's a, it's a hard thing for them to have their, their newborn baby removed. Um, chickens, of course, don't see their, their babies. They never hatch. The eggs, the eggs are just sold. And, um, um, and, and on, and of course, on these, on all of these farms, male animals are, are completely disposable. They have no function. And so um, um, eggs, the eggs, are, when the, when the, chickens are hatched in a hatchery on an egg farm, the males are immediately killed and the, and the females go on to, to become laying hens. So there's this real, um, and you know, they're animal bodies. And, and so, you know, of, of course it's, it, it's difficult to, to see that as, as being the same as exploiting uh, human female bodies, but it is, it is um, this constant exploitation of female reproduction to produce food. And it's, you know, if you ever see uh, mammals in particular, but also birds, you know, mother hen, I mean, you know, we, we think of these animals as being very nurturing and, and very maternal, and we remove all of those aspects of their lives from them and just kind of keep them crated up somewhere so that they can constantly crank out babies. And, and the same thing, of course, on hog farms where cow, you know, where the, the sows are kept in little crates and just, you know, give birth and, and feed their, their piglets through bars. And, um, and it's, it's a very sad, it's a very sad way of looking at reproduction, which is, you know, such a, such a wonderful thing. Um, and so that was one thing that we, that we talk about, that we talk about in the book. The other is the way that we um, sexualize female bodies in the marketing of meat. And um, we gave some examples there um, of meat advertisements that show like sexualized um, pigs, you know, pigs wearing high heels and, and sexy tight dresses and posing and presenting themselves as wanting to be consumed, um, which is a very problematic kind of, kind of a message. Um, and so it, it's, um, 
the meat industry, and, and we see, you know, we see this, we talked about the, the restaurants, the restaurants like Hooters and, right. and Twin Peaks. And um, the, the meat industry is just notorious for sexualizing the female animals and then suggesting that, that they want to be consumed. Um, so those were two really important aspects of that chapter on misogyny. And I know, and we talked a little bit about how that, um, I flagged this, this in the book. Um, we talked about how that kind of morphed into the, to the way people talk about um, certain women. Um, and Hillary Clinton was the example that we mm -hmm. gave because mm -hmm. this popular anti-Hillary Clinton political pin that read, KFC Hillary special, two fat thighs, two small breasts, left wing. And, um, you know, it's the kind of thing that comes right from the meat industry. Right, right. And uh, I, I really appreciated this chapter because it was, it was a blind spot for me. Um, it was, I, I, again, I think when we, when we, the conversations that we have had on this show we touch, we touch a lot on race as, as you do in your book. We talk a lot on climate, we've talked a lot about climate change, um, but I, I think we've, we've, we've completely overlooked that aspect of, of, of an ethic that um, just, it just doesn't get, you know, I think one um, misogyny in, in faith circles doesn't get discussed nearly enough Right. Um, and, and two, how, you know, those connections between, um, either the, the sexualization of animals that are going to be consumed or the, the, um, comparison of female body parts to elements of food, like all of that is deeply problematic. All of that mm -hmm. is, yeah. is, is, deeply harmful and you know I think you know as as we're recording we're a couple days out from this mass shooting in Atlanta and yeah. and we're seeing how dangerous it is when when misogyny goes unchallenged right um, and the ways that it's and what your book does what this chapter does is talk about how is really show us how insidious um, that can be and how it sneaks in places where, where, you know, someone might just go, oh, that's, that's a, that's a cute pig in a dress, you know, like, haha, yeah. it's just, it's just a yeah. joke, but these things have real, real world consequences. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's, and, and I think that, that you're, you know, observing that these things kind of sneak in is, mm -hmm. is really, is really the part of the problem. It, it would not be obvious to most people. It wasn't obvious to me until I met Carol. Um, uh, and, 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 you know, you can say, well, you know, does it really have an impact? Well, it, it's one, it's all of these little things adding up that have the impact. So each one of them, um, even if we're looking at it, we're saying, well, you know, we're not quite sure how that connects to misogyny, if, you know, like the exploitation of the, of the reproductive si uh, system, you know, we're not quite sure how that fits, but it all comes to fit together to, to be important in some way. Yeah. Um, you have this quote that I loved in the chapter on compassion. Um, 
the 20 the 20th century french mystic uh simone simone Weil wrote the love of our neighbor in all its fullness simply means being able to say what are you going through and then being willing to listen to the answer she writes this question is a recognition that the sufferer exists not as a unit in a collection or a specimen from the social category labeled unfortunate but as an individual who was one day stamped with a special mark of affliction to us, this is the basis of compassion. Part of why that hit me was that we don't regularly um, think about compassion towards non-human. Um, and and to, to think of, of animals as, as those who suffer and to kind of put that compassion lens towards animals really is a huge shift, I think, of, of perspective for us. And, and so I just, I just love to hear more on, on how compassion has, because uh, it seems to be like one of the, one of the central parts of your, of your vegan ethic is, is this compassion. Um, compassion for humans, for sure, but compassion mm -hmm. for animals as well. Um, so I'm, I'm just, I'm just really interested in hearing more from you about about how how compassion plays plays a role in this ethic for you. Um, yeah, I, you know, for some of it, it just uh, for for some of it, it seems to be just built in. Um, and it's interesting, it's interesting to talk with people within the animal rights movements, within the animal rights movement about how they came to, to the movement and what they felt about, about animals. Um, for me, it's, it, it was a deep sense of empathy towards animals that I was born with. It's just part of who I am. Um, you know, I'm the, I'm, I'm the bunny hugger. I'm the animal lover. You know, I'm the person who cries at every animal movie <laughs> and um, there's no explaining it. And uh, that, you know, it's, it, it just is. Um, you meet other people who have come into the animal rights movement from working on um, uh, human rights issues and, and within human rights nonprofits. There are quite a few people who, who started there and then um, uh, as and there can some somehow that compassion poured over into caring about animals as well and then also seeing the impact of factory farms on humans and on especially through the environment um and, and global warming and and so came into the animal rights movement that way with with an ethic of compassion there are other people who have come into um to veganism and to working on behalf of animals um not necessarily from a sense of compassion but uh, from a sense of justice, that this is not fair, the way we treat animals. I may not even have a pet, or especially like dogs and cats, but it's not fair. And, um, and, and you know, so they have this strong sense of fairness and of justice. And, and so they come to, to the movement that way. But absolutely, um, I think that the, the ethics that underscore veganism and animal rights are um, anti-oppression, um, pro-justice and compassion. I think that those are the three things that are really Im important in when we look at the, the way that, that we treat animals, because you can just really focus on the, the justice and the exploitation aspects of it. And that would be, that would be fine. That really is what animal rights is all about. But 
you just, you have to have compassion for these animals. They, you know, they suffer so much. And, and so it really does, um, it, it, it really is a big part of it. And, you know, we know from, um, one of the interesting things that I had read about when, when we were writing this book was, was about the science of compassion and about, you know, why some people have more compassion than other people. And some of the research shows that when people see that they can make a difference, their compassion grows. Um, and it's kind of easy to see why that would be that, you know, if you know that you can do something that's going to change something, it's probably a little bit easier to feel compassion because yeah. compassion can be, can be painful. Um, and so veganism is just a great way to, to realize that you can make a difference, that you can choose to have soy milk instead of cow's milk and you're making a little bit of a difference. It was really easy. And so maybe you start to feel a little bit more compassionate towards cows because you know, you can do something about it. So, um, yeah, I, you know, we talked, we talked about, we talked about veganism as, um, as resistance and we talked about it as, as, um, as hope and healing um, because of that relationship to compassion. And it's something that the, that the world just always needs more of. Yeah. And, and really at the heart of, of your, of the book is veganism is not a, it's not a diet. It's not, right. it's not just a, a, a thing to lose weight or, or even to increase health. It's an ethic. It's a, it's a, it's a way of being in the world and, and compassion and anti-oppression are big parts of, of that ethic. Right. Um, and I really, I really uh, appreciate um, you're holding, you're holding that up, uh, holding that up to the light for us. And I and again, it, in, and it takes us back to what we we talked about before, which is is that you can embrace that ethic wholeheartedly, even though you can in in terms of your choices and your actions, you can never be a perfect vegan. I mean, you just cannot live a life that is totally free of animal products. Not right now, anyway. Maybe with technology, we'll be able to eventually. But um, so yeah, so you can embrace that compassion. You can em embrace the beliefs about fairness and justice, and and still know that in in terms of your the way you live, you're you're still doing the work to get there. Yeah. And I, I, I and I so appreciate you saying that because you know we 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 have had folks on the show who who raise chickens and folks who raise pigs and and they're they're trying they're endeavoring um we're all trying we're all endeavoring um to live as justly as we can and live as justly as we know how to um and and you know um i think i think what you have what you have done is made this more approachable. I think sometimes there's this there's this kind of militance that comes along with these conversations about about veganism. But I, I feel like what you have done in this book is is highlight these justice issues and and um, and made and and presented your your case in a way that's really accessible and and again, like I said before, inviting and doesn't feel so us versus them. And yeah. I, think, I think that's really important. One of the, when we were writing the book, um, you know, we had so many conversations, of course, about what we wanted the tone to be and, and you know, how we wanted it, how we 
hoped it would be received and made this this vow that we would never use the word should in the book that um, anyone should do this or you know this should and that that it was indeed supposed to, to share information and be an invitation um, for people to to receive in whatever way they they wanted or could. Yeah. So two questions, uh, two final questions. Um, a lot of this book was uh, it's it's very clear, uh, and um, I love the. Uh, there's a couple of uh, recipes at, at the uh, at the end that make this very clear, uh, like the impeachment. Uh, pie. Um, there's a lot that's, <laughs> that is anti-Trump, um, and, and and as you said, you know the 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 start and genesis of this book was was the election. One of the things that I think all of us are are kind of afraid of is the uh, easing off of the gas with the Biden administration. That that the resistance kind of can can take a break. Um, what do you think are the the food um, priorities that we need to be pushing on this new administration um, so that we're we're not easy, taking our foot off the gas. We're not letting these issues of justice uh, go unaccounted for just because there's someone new in the Oval Office. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I think that um, uh, it is it is a little bit easy to to feel like you want to let up on the gas because you know certainly we have we now have a president who takes global warming seriously, right. um, and that's just just so exciting, <laughs> exciting, it's beyond exciting. <laughs> yeah, it's so great. Um, but I think uh, you know we have a USDA also, which is a very strong part of, of, of the government and has the, the dual responsibility of overseeing our food programs, including ones that, that feed hungry people and supporting farmers. And um, boy, there's some real tension there. It's th those are, are, are two aspects of government that should not be housed together. Yeah. Um, and so we, and, and we have, and, you know, in, in, in terms of the new secretary of agriculture, uh, you know, we haven't really gone forward too much with, um, with that. So I think that there, uh, you know, Joe Biden's not gonna, is not gonna adopt a, a, a vegan platform. I, I know that. And, um, uh, that's okay, but there, we really do need to to see some messages in in the government and some work in the government that emphasizes the fact that eating more plant foods, that reducing our dependency on factory on animal factory farms, is is important. It's an important part of fighting global warming. So I I would hope that. Um, it would be wonderful to see some government money going into some of the cellular agriculture, which is growing animal foods from cells, growing them in petri dishes, which I'm just completely in favor of. I think it's going to be going to be a life changer um, for animals and for people and, and for the environment. So I think that there's that we do, we do want to keep the pressure on about plant-based diets and better farming practices. Um, and you know, when I say plant-based diets, of course, I'm not talking about a vegan diet. I'm just talking about eating more plant foods, reducing animal foods. Um, and we've got some good people in the government for that. We have Cory Booker, who's, mm -hmm. uh, who is a vegan. Yeah. And uh, um, so there's hope. There, there is, there's hope. And that's, that in fact is a great segue to 
our final question, and we ask all of our guests this, um, what is giving you hope these days? Um, not not sort of like a, a light, airy hope, but, but really a gets you out of bed in the morning kind of hope. Simply seeing attitudes uh, towards um, animal farming shifting, seeing more people becoming aware of of the havoc that's that's wrought by factory farms and recognizing that there are things that we can do about it. The changing food landscape that is just making making it so much easier for many people to eat more plant-based diets. And, and that's not just greater availability of vegan foods, but wonderful cookbooks, wonderful cooking videos, um, people like, you know, the New York Times uh, cooking section and Mark Bittman, you know, they're really into all these plant-based recipes. So we see lots of encouragement there towards um, cooking more, more plant-based foods and so many more resources for, for people who want to do that. Um, and then I think, you know, I mentioned the, the, the technology I think is, um, is really going to be so important. I'm, I'm a big believer and I, I love natural things, but I like technology too. And I like science. And, um, and I think that they provide us with, with really good answers to a lot of very big problems. And this cellular agriculture and plant-based meats are at, at least one small part of, of the answer to problems of global warming and animal abuse on farms. Um, so those are things that, that give me hope. You know, watching what is changing in the world, you know, I read about how, um, you know, the poverty in, in some countries in Africa, for example, is just, you know, so devastating and, and hunger and food shortages. But, you know, I've read some things recently saying that it's actually starting to get better you know some lives lives are are improving in in some of these these areas and um we're making some advancements it's too slow there's more that we as people of privilege need to be doing but i do um i do see that things are changing for the better yeah. slowly yeah yeah Thank you, Jenny, so much for your time and for sharing uh, your thoughts. Where can people connect with you? Where can they find you um, on the on the interwebs? Where where can they connect with your work? Uh, yeah, I'm on. I have a, a, a website that's theveganrd.com. RD is registered dietitian, so theveganrd.com, and I am at theveganrd on Twitter and Facebook, and I'm Jenny Messina on Instagram because I post a lot of pictures of my cats there. That's not all. all <laughs> That's what Instagram is for. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, Jenny, thank you again for your time and uh, appreciate your work, appreciate your, your sharing your heart and, um, and uh, just really grateful that I had a chance to read this and to talk with you today. Oh, thank you. It was great talking with you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Food and Faith Podcast. Our collaborators are Wake Forest School of Divinity, Plain Song Farm, The Garden Church, and The Keep and Tell. Editing is by Derek Weston and music by Paul Deemer. Follow along and keep up to date with the podcast on Facebook at Food and Faith Podcast, Twitter and Instagram at Food and Faith Pod, or on our website at foodandfaithpodcast.org.